Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 285, Reformation of Manners. What can I say, everyone? I'm very sorry for the gap, but in my defence, I did contract a major illness, which, you know, wasn't my fault. But here I am, back in the shed, and back in front of a mic. It is surprisingly emotional, or probably unsurprisingly emotional, actually. Two months in forced absence in a hospital. There are a few things. Firstly, it is worth saying this is little more than a temporary reprieve, a little time spent in the side eddy of the river of life before the force of the water pushes me on again. Essentially, I must be in a hospital plenty for treatment, but then they release me into the wild just to remind myself what real life is like away from hospital food. It is uncertain how long these periods are and how I will feel and what work I'll be able to do in them. At this moment in time, I had a few episodes pre-written. Those will, of course, run out. So look, I'll do my very best, but cannot promise it will be hit and it will be miss. And this is a situation which I'm afraid to say will go on at least for many months. The main thing to say, though, is a big thank you to all of those who wrote to me with words of encouragement and affection, telling me you'd stick around not to worry. I read all of them, whether on Facebook, the website iTunes, email, Twitter, and they meant a lot to me. I can still hardly say how much. Thank you so much for all of that. A special word for all my members who have been amazingly supportive with the messages and support and also the rather casual and rather loving dismissal that there should be a problem staying with a membership that's produced nothing new for eight weeks. That you allow me to do the thing I love doing is brilliant of you, never more than now. That then 
is quite an affirmation, thank you all very much. You haven't come here to listen to me snivel pitifully into a microphone to thank Mrs De Miggins for the Victorian sponge she sent in. Though Mr Miggins, if you are listening, well, you know, I am partial to orange and have a sweet tooth buttermilk, you know. But nope, you came to hear about how folks entertained themselves in the 16th century, and we were talking about whether or not there really was a decline in entertainment led by the Reformation or the hotter sort of Protestant. If you can think that far back, I left you in the last episode with a conundrum. How was it that the later 16th century saw the demise of all those medieval mystery plays, while at the same time seeing the flourishing theatre scene? How does that fit with the general story of the murder of all fun and games by the Protestant Reformation? Well, there is a theory, so don't worry, but it seems useful, given that it's been a few weeks, to just restate a couple of themes about all of this. Essentially, a contention is that the 16th century saw the death of Merry England, taken behind the bike sheds and given a thorough going over by the Protestant Reformation, and that behind that lay a reformation of manners driven by the hotter type of Protestant that many Puritans were of the better sort in the parish, as it were, and together with the economic changes of the 16th century, there also emerges a separation between elite and popular culture. I summarise and paraphrase for brevity. I think that's broadly it. Mainly also, this episode is just a chance to talk about Tudor festivals, so if you want to, you can, you know, ignore all that stuff. I did also promise you to see Agnes Haycroft and Frideswide Hodgson in Winchester, which I will still promise to do. I haven't forgotten. Anyway, back to theatre then. And how do we start with the decline of the mystery play cycles and end with the vibrancy of Tudor theatre? The answer, of course, was that one form of theatre, that of the mystery plays, did indeed die. But there were plenty of other traditions that allowed theatre not only to survive the Reformation, but actually to thrive under it but very much not to remain unchanged. I do not intend to do an episode on Elizabethan theatre because I'm not qualified, though who knows, maybe I'll try at some point in the future. But for now, let it be enough to say that theatre in many ways flourished. A London market in particular was, de was developed and not just for the court. In 1574, the London Common Council considered licensing and taxation due to the inordinate haunting of great multitudes of people to plays, interludes and shows. Companies such as Leicester's Men and Warwick's Men and others were regularly performing at three new public theatres and four or more inns in the city. Companies travelled to perform at towns all round the country. In some ways, theatre fulfilled a perfect role for the authorities in Tudor England, the same driving force behind the ceremonies of inversion that allowed misrule and outing every so often in the parish. It allowed the great mass of people to do a Rapunzel, to let down their hair, to mildly rebel and have a good time before the full weight of the yoke of hierarchy descended once more onto their shoulders. Let off a bit of steam. Far be it from me to try and analyse any of the Bard's plays, but there's a theory I understand that runs that there is a secret to Shakespeare's comedies, that they are mildly subversive in a safe atmosphere, topics too dangerous to contemplate in public view outside of a licensed framework. I must admit, I wasn't aware that Shakespeare had done any comedies, but I don't claim to be an expert. Actually, 
The authorities did also worry that theatre would prove subversive, and they expanded the powers of censorship of the Master of Revels, and in 1583 tried a bold attempt to bring all the best professionals into the patronage of the Queen through the formation of the Queen's men so they could control it. The company was supposed to replace all other companies to the benefit of the central control. Instead, it produced a proliferation of Queen's men, which is a bit of a hoot. The city complained that last year, when such toleration was of Queen's players only, all the places of playing were filled with men calling themselves the Queen's players. Well, the little tinkers. The main result had been the creation of new commercial opportunities to rehearse their plays before the London public. By the mid 1580s, companies like the Lord Chamberlain's Men and the Admiral's Men were also performing again. Nope. The thing that really worried Protestant reformers was not the existence of plays; it was the way in which religion was or might be represented in plays. They worried about the misrepresentation that might occur, or misrepresentation in their view. The more serious-minded were inclined to suck their teeth and mutter that the theatre was hardly the right place to discuss such important themes. In 1589, Sir Francis Bacon complained of this immodest and deformed manner, whereby matters of religion are handled in the style of the stage. The impact then. Was that religious matters became a subject not considered appropriate for the stage, and this contributed towards the decline and final disappearance of the old mystery plays. But the impact on drama generally was not necessarily negative, because new subjects were found on English history, on identity, on powers. A new generation of playwrights produced what historian Lawrence Manley described as an unprecedented complexity of response. Despite a gut feeling that censorship is always bad, in this particular case, it appeared to liberate theatre from the shackles of religion. Okay, grinding on relentlessly and thin-lipped through the ritual year, then none would be complete without the harvest home. Here is a remembrance from 1598. As we were returning to our inn, we happened to meet some country people celebrating their harvest home, their last load of corn. They crown with flowers, having beside an image richly dressed, by which perhaps they would signify Ceres. This they keep moving around while men and women, men and maid servants, riding through the streets in the cart, shout as loud as they can until they arrive at the barn. The highlight of the celebration was the harvest home supper, and a celebration so related to the turn of the seasons remained a part of parish celebrations. We covered Rogation Day a while ago, so probably that just leaves the other major event of autumn, the Feast of the Dead, called Hallowtide or Allentide. Halloween, when I'm sure one of my daughters told me that the distance between the corporal world and the spirit world is supposed to be at its thinnest, I can neither confirm nor deny not having a spiritual bone in my body. And in the finest tradition of humbug, can I just say that I despise Halloween almost beyond reason. And I'd rather go and watch an entire cycle of Shakespeare comedies than be forced to answer the door to one trick or treater. And every year, I sink to my knees and thank the Lord that Halloween wasn't a thing in the UK when I was a lad. Sorry, I rant. I'm back. Back in the early 16th century, it was a very important ceremony—a time for the dead to be remembered 
and helped by the prayers of the living. After evensong, the church bells would be rung to comfort the dead in purgatory and the churches would be illuminated with candles. You will not be surprised to learn that the Protestant attitude to purgatory, though, meant that all souls went the way of all flesh. And what had been a very central ceremony in people's lives disappeared from them. There can be little doubt that this is a loss that would have been particularly keenly felt. So, if you can cast your mind all the way back to the last episode, what we essentially have is a mixed picture. There are many ceremonies lost. Changes to the long-standing rhythm of the year, which would have been embedded into many villagers' memories as part of their immortal traditions. Though it's worth remembering what Hutton found, that many of those traditions were nowhere near as longly established as he had assumed. Nonetheless, after two or three generations, they did probably feel that way. And yet, clearly many celebrations did go, such as All Souls, because they no longer had a role within reformed religious observance. Many festivals like Christmas and May Day, though, did survive, though Edward's reign cut deep. The revival under Mary did not stop under the first years of Elizabeth. May Day, Harvest Home, Church Ales, even the mystery plays actually, survive and thrive early in Elizabeth's reign. And it's clear that Elizabeth herself was quite clean on ceremony and the fun of the festival. There is some appearance of national festivals too, like the Queen's Coronation Day. Though generally... What happens is that time goes on in Elizabeth's reign, more of the old ceremonies did just begin to wither away. The mystery plays are a very good example. They began to gutter in the late 1560s and finally went out in the early 70s, for reasons which we now understand, I think. There was more pressure on observances now like church ales and May Day, so why was that? Is this the work of the godly, disapproving of anyone anywhere having any fun, rather than focusing on whether or not they're saved? Is this part of a cultural hegemony, the haves enforcing their world view on the haves nots? Well, it's quite clear that many parishes and ministers did want to bring more control around popular and church festivals. And it's quite clear that many did reduce the frequency and variety of public celebrations. As Richard Carew wrote... Many ministers have, by their earnest invective, both condemned these saints' feasts as superstitious and suppressed the church ales as licentious. Also clear that there was plenty of resistance and the fact that there was by no means a complete or general sweeping away of festivals. In 1581, in Medbourne, Leicestershire, the minister, Anthony Anderson, had been determined to rub them out, but lamented that idolatrous feasts are daily kept the church saint must have his woke days, which is all spent in bear-baiting, Bacchus cheer and Venus filthy sports. The good minister Anderson appears to have been fighting a losing battle against his parishioners. The church record records the grimly determined view of Mistress Marston, who is prepared to tackle her minister head-on in the church, telling her fellow parishioners that preaching against bonfires is not God's word that Mr Anderson preacheth. The concerns of the church authorities were multiple, but it's equally clear they did not take a simple stance of banning events and ceremonies. They appear to have been content to let them proceed as long as they worked within certain parameters. And the obvious one was to remove the festivals that no longer met with doctrine, or change and reform the festivals in a way that made them fit. 
They were particularly rigorous in enforcing this in areas where Catholicism remained strongest the longest, so the North and Northwest, for example, and against activities such as well-dressing, which does survive in Derbyshire, I believe. But there were others. Elizabethan ministers were much more concerned about attendance and what they saw as the appropriate use of church grounds. So, they often refused to allow parishioners to use the churchyard for ales now, being much more concerned that it was just not appropriate to use the space in that way. Here are instructions from the Archbishop of York, Edmund Grindle. The minister and church wardens shall not suffer any lords or misrule or summer lords or ladies or any disguised persons or others in Christmas or at May games or any minstrels, morris dancers or others at rush bearings or any other times to come irreverently into any church or chapel or churchyard and there dance or play any unseemly parties with scoffs, jests, wanton gestures or ribald talk. Well, there you go. Nobody wants a ribald talk. That's as clear as it gets, really. And the visitation instructions of other bishops included the same kind of comments. There are a few things to notice about the words of Grindle. One is that it gives you a nice summary of the kind of village and parish festivities we're talking about. Another, it is, makes it clear why the church objected. It is a question of separating the sacred and the profane. But also the church's attitude is disapproving, but this is not a reformation in manners in the sense it's often presented of banning these activities from people's lives. It's simply a matter of where it happens. There is one thing he does not mention which becomes a constant refrain of the Elizabethan church. They become very keen to make sure everyone tends church each week and takes communion regularly. This is, of course, an absolutely central tenet of the theme of participation in the Protestant approach. That meant they objected strongly to secular events which took place on Sundays because it might then clash and damage attendance. So clearly church is a factor, but there are other factors too. It's notable that secular courts join in this very same campaign. Their focus, however, is rather different. Here are the justices of Devon explaining their campaign in terms of the many disorders, contempts of laws and other enormities committed to the great profusion of the Lord's Sabbath, the dishonour of Almighty God, the increase of bastardy and dissolute life, and many other mischiefs and inconveniences to the great hurt of the Commonwealth. The secular authorities were worried about violence and a perceived threat to the common peace. It is impossible to see this outside the rise of population, and the distress of a new and growing population of the poor who simply could co not cope anymore with the growth of vagrancy and with social panic in the face of old eternal verities of employment and parish life stretched and broken. I will do an episode on crime and punishment sometime when we are deeper into Elizabethan England, but I can reveal as an exclusive preview there is no great evidence that these pressures did lead to increase in violence in terms of violence against people specifically. But the fear of it, ha, now, the fear of it was very real and ever-present, and that's the thing. The move was therefore once more to control rather than to ban. There are other simpler reasons also for the end of some festivities. Often people simply lost interest or they were difficult to organise. But despite a general decrease, 
There are therefore plenty of examples which illustrate that parish festivities carry on and are still very common by the end of Elizabeth's reign. In Oxford City, seven parishes continued with the celebrations on Ascension Day in 1598, for example. A great number of the inhabitants of Oxford assembled together early in the morning of these days with drum and shot and other weapons, and men attired in women's apparel, and brought into town a woman betecked with garlands and flowers, named by then the Queen of May. They also had Morris dances and other disordered and unseemly sports. In 1601, there's a similar example in South Kyme, Lincolnshire, together with the men of Coningsby, who are together reputed to have drunk the town of Coningsby dry. Well done, folks. The event included a satirical play, having a hack at the unpopular Earl of Lincoln, and in the interlude was a mock sermon. In events like these, there's not only the survival of village celebration, but support for the view that in popular celebration lay a large slice of popular resistance to authority, and that the separation of church and secular celebration was a significant trend that this separation encouraged the seeds and sprouting of a social separation too. Events and festivities away from church ground began to be more supported and initiated by the poorer members of the parish, and church wardens and other local officers might not ban them or do anything to stop them, but equally, unlike former days, were not necessarily part of them. In that, something too would be lost, and leads us on to the idea that this, is, that this attempt to stop the rowdiness was part of a general attempt by the well-heeled of the parish, the yeomanry and gentry, to suppress popular culture in the name of a more general reformation of manners. Part of that argument has been rejected plenty on the basis that seeing labourers and cottagers as hapless and helpless in the wider politics of the parish completely misunderstands the tools that they had at their disposal to both resist and reinvent. Without a doubt, Tudor society was deeply hierarchical and deferential, but the poorer members of the parish had their own agency and role, despite their disadvantages. We see some of this in those festivities like those at South Kyme, and in the kind of resistance we discussed in the episode about the parish. But it's also very likely that in many aspects of this reformation of manners, all members of the parish were very much willing participants. Order, peace, stability were hardly the concern only of the better off. Belief in and active support of standards of morality were as much a matter of concern for the cottager as they were for the yeoman farmer. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Obviously then, we need to talk about sex, baby, which is worth an episode all of its own, which you'll get next time, actually, since regulating sexual behaviour was an obsession, not just for 16th century society, but as we'll see, an obsession for English and European society all the way from the Middle Ages. But it is also worth noting that the concern to manage and reform manners covered many forms of behaviour. I have rather taken the word manners itself as sort of red, so it maybe needs a bit of explanation, since these days manners is largely about 
civility and politeness, using cutlery according to various daft and impenetrable social norms rather than anything deeper. In medieval and early modern England, the word mores might be closer, habits, way of life, a moral climate. The idea of manners was a deep one, and society used words like ill, evil or corrupt when they considered the kind of manners that required reformation. Manners were not just politeness. They were the very fundamental attitude towards life and morality on which the Commonwealth depended for its health. So, here's an example, for example, at a secular court where two women were indicted, who having been heretofore presented for the like fault and admonished to reform the same, have not amended their manners. The idea of reforming society was also not new to early modern England. We've heard the word associated a lot with religion, of course, but that was most certainly not the only area of application. The word was used generally and was a favourite of humanist thought too. Humanists in court circles in particular also emphasised the importance of the monarch and government in revitalising and extending reformation of the way people lived their lives. So, Although we'll focus on behaviour and sexual regulation, it's worth looking at a few other areas where control and reformation was considered necessary. One of these was tillage. We've talked a lot about enclosure, and there is always a whiff, more than a whiff actually, about the oppression of the poor at the hands of the rich. What I don't think I've mentioned enough is that many in government were every bit as concerned about the trend as anyone else. It was not just Thomas More and Utopia who worried that enclosure was undermining the strength and structure of society. So, the Tillage Act of 1597 was one of the many efforts to do the knut thing and turn back the waves of change on which the ship of England was helplessly tossed. It was intended to preserve defence of the land by making sure the military remained served by the husbandman, a strong and hardy man, the good footman. The same concern for defence was one of the regions for legislation against unlawful games. Just in case you needed any more confirmation that a reformation of manners was not the preserve of the post-religious world, there are acts about games and their regulation in 1388, 1497, Increasingly irrelevant as a weapon of war, archery nonetheless remained a central part of the leisure time of ordinary people, reflected in the street names of villages and towns to this day, with a variety of places called the Butts or Butts Close, reflecting where the archery butts would have been erected on a Sunday. It was the law that families must provide their sons with a bow and arrow, and men aged between 17 and 60 had to provide themselves with a longbow and four arrows. But by the 1570s, John Stowe would write, tears no doubt streaming down his face. What should I speak of the ancient daily exercises in the longbow by citizens of this city, now almost clean left off and forsaken? Part of the worry was that England's youth would be corrupted by other unclean pastimes. Bowls, tennis, 
football, quoits, cards and dice. Plus ça change and all that, as the world worries now about, you know, whatever. Football at the time was essentially the Atherston ball game, where two sides fought over possession of the ball. Villagers might play against each other, and by and large, they weren't gentle. It was a contemporary side. A beastly fury and extreme violence. Whereof proceedeth hurt, and consequently rancour and malice do remain with them that be wounded. Still, at least there were no outrageously priced season tickets, that's all I'll say. Tennis was also banned, actually. I had thought this to be an elite game, but if it was worth banning, then probably not. But John Stowe's comment on it might suggest that handball was actually the popular form of the game, since that's essentially the equivalent of hitting a ball against a wall with your mates, just using your hand. The ball is used by the noblemen and gentlemen in tennis courts, and by people of meaner sorts in the open fields and streets. Bowling. Now, bowling was banned, as in bowling greens, and that seems absolutely incredible to me. I mean, what could be more civilised than bowls? John Stowe once more disapproved, accusing the idle working class that they would creep into bowling alleys and ordinary dicing houses near a home where they have room enough to hazard their money at unlawful games. There were, in fact, hundreds of bowling alleys in London, apparently. This is the game where you try to get the ball closest to the jack, though there was a Skittles version too. Part of the disapproval was about the distraction from the manly dis- pursuit of archery, but the answer to John's fury is probably revealed mainly in the quote about gambling that accompanies these games. Here was where the Reformation was really needed. Gambling accompanied everything, including the ubiquitous dice and card games. Backgammon was a popular pastime too, with a backgammon set, I believe, being found on the Mary Rose. He didn't need a board, of course, you could just scratch it on the wall or on the earth. There were also chess and draughts. Just to be clear about just how cross and grumpy society was about these things, there was a link in the 1563 Statute of Artificers between the craftsmen and gambling and games, which would apparently lead said innocent and vulnerable craftsmen to the haunting of alehouses, cozenges, deluding of men's wives, daughters and maidens, procuring them to hoarden and to pilfer for their maintenance. The statute was therefore designed to reform the unadvised rashness and licentious behaviour of youth. Ah, the unadvised rashness and licentious behaviour of youth. Such a missed opportunity. Oh. Legislation was also brought out to restrict what people wore, as we have seen with the sumptuary laws, which raged about the outrageous excess and the pride mother of all the vices. Legislation was extended to cover usury, which was made a secular matter from 1487 with statutes in Parliament, but it really it became impossible to regulate either, especially in an increasingly sophisticated market. The main aim of all these campaigns, then, was about the control of behaviour. And most important amongst these was swearing and public disturbance. To have a look at the sort of thing that went on, let me take you to Winchester. I might warn you that the language is a little fruity. The year is 1544. Henry VIII is getting fat and ill. And I'm going to take you to the fair city of Winchester for an incident which the Oxford historian Jonathan Healy wrote a blog about, which made me laugh. 
Not sure why. Possibly the level of fruit in the language. I'm sure I'd have been outraged of Tunbridge Wells if I'd been there. The language is 16th century, but it is vulgar, and we're basically down apart from this little example of how people swore each other and the kind of words they used. So, if you want to miss the vulgarities, skip forward to the end now, and there'll be another episode in two weeks' time, and thanks for listening. But if you want to listen on... So we are at The Prentice, which is a covered walkway near the centre of the city, which is still there, actually, replete with Tudor buildings, and very lovely it is too. And there, witnesses saw Mistress Foster strike and draw blood on the face of one Agnes Haycroft. Agnes retreated, but Foster was joined by her daughter, Frideswide Hodgson, and asked what was up. Her mum spat back, that housewife, Haycroft's whiff, brought her maids up to beat me at my own door. Now, I had been told that the first task in such matters is to suck as much heat out of the situation as possible, to allow a calm and reflective assessment of the situation, bring inner peace and harmony. So Frideswide, her daughter, said, That brazen-faced whore, that measled face and scold whore, Haycroft whiff, I will never be contented till she be driven out of town with basins as her mother was. If I had been here, I would have knocked her furred cap and her head together. OK, there are alternative viewpoints about managing conflict, obviously. Turns out that Agnes Haycroft, however, had not legged it, but simply gone for the support of her maidservant. And so Agnes was back. And she'd heard Frideswide. Would you have done it, you popped-nosed housewife? Rude. Frideswide was up for it. Nay, thou pokey-nosed whore. Feast thou, thou measled-faced whore. Thou camest to town with a leper's face and a scald head, and I defy thee utterly. For I would thou knowest it, that the foulest place of mine ass is fairer than thy face. Even ruder. I think we'll leave it there, but there is a point to this I'm going to try to convince you there is. Sadly, we don't know the answer of the court case that this came from, as quite often you don't get the the judgments, you only get the indictments. So I'm sorry, I cannot tell you who won this particular case. But anyway, as Jonathan Healy's blog post, The Social Historian, relates, we can tell a lot about a society in the insults it uses. I commend the blog to you. The link is on the website. He notes that insults at this time were very gendered. Men were called all sorts of names, but women were usually called whore or some version of it. It's usually about sexual misdemeanour. But a sense of worth was up there too. So we used to giggle at school about Shakespeare's use of the word naughty, which seemed so mild. But back then the implications were much more than that. They were worth as naught, literally naught-y. So hierarchy is part of it too. Another group of effective insults would suggest disorder, the dragon of medieval and early modern society which must be slain. Go home and look at thy house, be clean, for there are no good rule is kept there. One house was accused. No good rule, no order. Most notably in our example, of course, is the language of physical failings. Schooled head, leper's face, constant references to the knicker area. Physical ugliness strongly suggested disorderliness, lack of control, a physical ugliness that suggested social deviance. 
One point about this, which we were making earlier, is that the importance of social control, of social order, is as important to everybody throughout society, no matter of their standing. The reason we have these records, by the way, owes nothing to the normal records we have used in the past in these pages. There is no monkish chronicler wandering the streets of Winchester record the arguments of the traders. These refer to the records of the bawdy courts, the church courts, regulating morality, of which there are now increasing survivals. There will be a day when we have a really good look at crime in early modern England, because it's a topic more fascinating than words can wield the matter, because it not only is a lot of fun, but it also has a material impact on the formation of the nation-state that is England. But this is not that day. Our job in the next episode is to look at the regulation of sex in the Reformation of Manners. Now, I want you to notice that much of what we have spoken about today has been about attempts to control behaviour that actually turns out stretched out long before the English Reformation, certainly to the 15th century, often to the 14th. But if we turn to sex, well, it is here surely where enters a figure wearing the clothes, and possibly nose, of the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the Puritan. It is well known that when it comes to sex, it is the Puritan who is responsible for a nasty, censorious clamp down on the perfectly sensible pursuit of a bit of a harmless slap and tickle. Or is it, ladies and gentlemen? Or is it? Thank you very much for listening, everybody. I am very grateful. I hope this, the next episode will be in a couple of weeks' time, but we'll keep you informed on the website and the Facebook site. Thank you again so much for your support through what's been a really difficult time. I really appreciated it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.